Well, if you're just joining us, this is an exciting time for us as a church because we're in the midst of a study in the book of Colossians, and we're just getting to the section that deals with the family. So if you can turn in your Bibles, or if you can look on with someone else to the New Testament book of Colossians, we will be set to go for this morning. As you're turning there, I would certainly make comments, since we're talking about marriage in the family, when it comes to those kinds of topics, I think it's fair to say that there are as many opinions as there are people. Uh, whoever you talk to, they have an opinion about marriage, they have an opinion about parenting, they have an opinion about wives and husbands, and it seems to never end. The good part is that we as Christians are not bound by every changing philosophy. Uh, what we're bound by is the eternal Word of God. God who knows everything, God who is eternal, He knows what's going to happen tomorrow, He knows what's going to happen in a thousand years, uh, wrote down His will for us in His Word. And so we don't need to be tossed here and there by every philosophy. Even in the family, we can turn to God's Word. The other great thing about turning to God's Word is the fact that we don't just turn to God's Word to know what's right and what's wrong. It's not as if God is some kind of ogre that would say, this is right, you must do it, period, whether it's good for you or not. We know that God cares about us. He loves us as His children. What He's going to tell us to do and He's going to give us instruction is going to bring true fulfillment in our lives true happiness, genuine, authentic happiness, because he would have our best interest in mind. Not only that, he authored marriage. I mean, he's the designer of marriage. It's his institution. Certainly, he knows what's best for the family. He knows what's best for marriage. He knows what's best regarding parenting. So today, we're going to be in the New Testament book of Colossians, and we'll begin this study dealing with God's plan for the family. What is God's plan for the family? And we're going to see in the next couple of weeks, we'll be here for three weeks, we're going to see God addressing wives, God addressing husbands, God addressing children, and God addressing parents. And we'll see all four of those. I think we'll spend three weeks, we'll put children and parents together in the third week. But before we go any further, uh, let's go ahead and read this section of Scripture together so we can see all that he has to say about these groups. If you'd read with me in verse 18... It says, Wives, be subject to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be embittered against them. Children, be obedient to your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. Fathers, do not exasperate your children so that they will not lose heart. I mentioned to Molly earlier in the week, I said, well, I'm really hoping that I can deal with wives and husbands Sunday. You know, because you're just going to deal with wives and then you're going to leave the husbands and that's not fair, is it? And so I broke the bad news to her last night. I said, well, we're going to talk about wives tomorrow. And she said, oh, you didn't get the husbands? I said, no, I didn't. So no apologies. All of that is just to say, wives, don't let your husbands get out of next week. <laughs> don't take any excuse from them. I don't care if they're on their deathbed. I don't really mean that. But make sure they're here. Wives, you're going to hear what God has to say regarding your role. Make sure that they hear what it says about theirs. And in three weeks, children, no excuses, right? They're going to have to be in the hospital uh, on major medication. Otherwise, bring them here. Well, we can always give them the tape, right? We could do it that way, but it's never as fun as in person. Well, as we read that passage and I said we're only going to deal with wives, before we actually look there, I want to make sure I remind you about the greater context of Colossians. Where does this fall in the book of Colossians? And a brief review here of this great book. First two chapters of Colossians, I hope this is entrenched in a lot of your minds. First two chapters deals with who Jesus Christ is. 
Who is Jesus Christ? And we learn in chapters 1 and 2 that Jesus Christ is not just a good man, uh, not just a perfect man, he was a perfect man who was also God. Not only that, Jesus Christ designed the universe, he created the universe, he sustains the universe. Jesus Christ not only did all of those things, Jesus Christ came to this earth, lived a perfect life, died a perfect death for sinners like us, and rose again from the dead. We learn all of those truths in Colossians 1 and 2. Another very important thing we learn in Colossians 2 is that anyone who trusts in Him and Him alone will be made perfect, complete, spiritually speaking. Colossians 2.10 describes how if we are in Christ, if we've trusted in Him, we lack nothing. We need nothing else. The only issue is actually living out that perfection and doing that perfection. And that's really where we come to chapter 3. First two chapters deal primarily with who Christ is and what He's done for us. And then in chapter 3, we see the transition, and now it's time to be challenged. We learned a lot of facts. Now it's time for you to do something if you're a Christian, and for me to do something if I'm a Christian. And we're at the family section now, but I want to go back and remind you, before we get to the details of family and work and church, as we've been looking at, there's a general principle here given in the first four verses of Colossians 3. This is the general truth, the new perspective for you if you're a Christian. This should be your perspective generally. Look at verse 1 if you would. It says, Therefore, in light of who Christ is and what He's done, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. He goes on to elaborate in verse 2. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. What's he saying there? Now that you're a Christian, if you've trusted in Christ, you have a new perspective on life. You have a new angle on it. You have a new philosophy of life. You're no longer concerned with the philosophies of the world. You're no longer living according to self and everything else. Now where is your focus? Above, where Christ is. You are preoccupied with Christ and His will and doing what He says. And that's the general tenor of what we're finding in Colossians 3 and 4. That's just the general principle. Then he goes on in 3 and 4 to even give more explanation of that. We won't take time to read it. But I always like to go back there and say that's the, that's the perspective. Then he gets into the details. Okay, now that you have a up, uh, an upward focus, here's how to live your life personally. He also dealt with here's how to live your life in the church. And now we're at the section, here's how to live your life at home. And next time we'll talk about work as we get through that in the next couple of weeks. A new perspective that should really drive all of these specifics that we're seeing. Now that you're a Christian, you have a special role, a special way to function. Now, I don't think you have to think about this very long, even if you just read the verses, 18, 19, 20, and 21, to find out that that philosophy of living and life is just a little bit different from the philosophy that's promoted in our world, isn't it? Ha, that's an understatement, isn't it? It's, it's, it's light years different. I mean, if you were to look at some family section or on parenting in the Omaha World Herald, these probably aren't the principles that would be laid out, are they? No, they're not. The other thing that would be true, these may not be the principles that you followed before you were a Christian. Maybe they're not the principles you follow now as a Christian. But the argument of Colossians is now that you're in Christ, now that you're a believer, you march to the beat of a different drummer, so to speak. You're seeking the things above the heavenly perspective. You're trying to please Him, not yourself or anyone else. And so I'm not surprised at all if you read these and say, hmm, different. Very different. Well, that's because we're different. We're supposed to be different. 
first group we're going to deal with, we're dealing with wives and the wives' role. And again, husbands, we're looking at you next week, and I have all kinds of ammo for husbands. It's easier for me because I am one. Um, and so I'm looking forward to that. <laughs> Not for myself, but I've already studied it, and I would really like to exhort some of you men. So uh, I know you're just waiting for that. Wives are, right? That's where wives say, Amen! Preach it, Pastor! No, you don't have to do that. Let's look at this notion of wives and their role. In Colossians 3.18, it says, Wives, be subject to your husbands. Let's read it again. Wives, be subject to your husbands. Now, I don't think you have to have a Ph.D. in biblical languages to figure out what that means. It means what it says, and it says what it means, and it's pretty straightforward what he's talking about there. I don't think it's very complicated at all. But before we proceed... I think it would only be naive for me to think that everyone here believes that. I think it would be naive for me to say, yeah, oh, everyone would accept this and be excited about it. As a matter of fact, there may even be some of us who have some objections that are kind of floating to the surface of our minds. Uh, but, but what about this? What about that situation? And maybe there's just not a good general grip about what the Bible says about the notion of subjection or submission. And so what I would like to do is not shy away from this passage. We'll get to it, and we'll do what we normally do. Explain it, understand it, illustrate it, and I will, I will not back off of exhorting you wives with it. We'll get there. Because that's what we always do. That's the great thing about teaching verse by verse. You can't say, oh yeah, pastor was laying for us this morning. Because if I skipped it, what would you say? Well, this isn't good. We skipped a part of the verse. Well, what are you doing here? And, and to be honest with you, I want what, what, is be- what is best. I want really deep down inside in my savedness, if I can call it that, to deal with what God says about husbands. Because I'm a husband and I really do want to be the best husband I can be. And I really do want my wife to be the best wife she can be. So we don't want to shy away from that and we're going to treat this like anything else we treat, except I want to back up just for a few minutes and say, what does the Bible as a whole teach about submission? especially dealing with wives. What does it teach as a whole? And then we're going to reapproach the passage in Colossians 3 and we're going to actually apply it and exhort uh, one another with it. So here's the basic outline for this morning. Uh, the basic outline is looking at the four different areas in the family, but we're only looking at one, so you only get one point in the outline. So if you need a different outline for today, let's talk about biblical submission. And we're going to look at, uh, I came up with six facts regarding biblical submission. So if you'd like to write these down here, are six truths, six facts, whatever you'd like to call them, regarding submission. What does it say? What are the implications? What does it mean? Let's start with number one. Let's just define the word submit or be subject. The word submit or be subject literally means to be arranged under. It means to be arranged under, and it comes out of a military background. In the military, and that's where the Christian church would have, in their language, would have gotten this word, you're, to be arranged under in rank. You could have a colonel who is 100% a person, believe it or not, and you could have a private who is 100% a person, and they're equally people, but yet they have a different roles. One may be subject. The one would be subject to the other. And so that's the, the basic flavor of the word. Now, they're both equal, I would say, as people, but yet they have different roles. And I'm already getting ahead of myself. That's a basic definition. Number two, regarding another fact about submission in the Bible, submission does not violate equality. Submission, biblically speaking, does not violate spiritual equality. We have different roles, but spiritually, men and women, the Bible teaches as clear as can possibly be that men and women are spiritual equals. Okay, don't miss that, guys. You're listening to all the submission part. 
Uh, the Bible also is very clear that we are spiritual equals. I want you to turn in your Bibles to Galatians 3, if you would. We're in Colossians. We're going to back up a couple of books, three books, and go to Galatians 3. And we'll find that I am completely and totally equal to my wife, and she is completely and totally equal to me spiritually. We're not going to have separate places in heaven because one of us was male and one was female. No, she may be more spiritual than I am. That may get her a better place than I have. But we're equal, and that's how the Lord sees us. Galatians 3.28 is the classic passage. It says, There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female. That's what we wanted to see. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. We're equal. Totally, completely, to the nth degree, we are equal in Christ. Now, what's interesting is the fact that some people want to try to make Galatians 3 the enemy of Colossians 3. And they want to make them fight. But I would try to use the, the famous uh, thinking of Charles Haddon Spurgeon, the famous Baptist preacher, and he said, why would you want to reconcile two friends? I don't think Galatians and Colossians are enemies. They're friends. Remember, Paul wrote both of them. He wasn't some kind of spiritual schizophrenic. He understood in Colossians 3, and he understood what he was saying in Galatians 3. We, no need for reconciliation, because they're not fighting. They're just emphasizing different things. Colossians 3 is emphasizing a role, and Galatians 3 is emphasizing equality as spiritual beings. So let's make sure we understand that they complement each other, and just because you have a different role doesn't mean you're different spiritually. Another passage to look at regarding spiritual equality in this notion, and I want to look at the issue of the Trinity, the Godhead, Christ the Son, and God the Father. Because what we're going to find, and you can turn to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We're looking at a few more verses today than normal. That's okay. What we're going to find is that Jesus Christ, the Son, who's totally, completely, 100% God, submits to God the Father who is 100% totally and completely God. Now, if you're willing to say they're not spiritual equals, you're wrong. <laughs> they are spiritual equals, but yet there is submission in their roles. 1 Corinthians 11.3 says, But I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man, and the man is the head of, every, of, of a woman, and notice there, God is the head of Christ, God the Father. There is order even within the Trinity in their roles. And I know they're the same of essence and I know they're the same of nature because in John chapter 10, what does Jesus say? He says, I and the Father are what? Are one. And I know he's not talking about one in purpose only. He's talking about one in nature because how do the Jews respond? They pick up rocks to stone him and kill him. If he was just saying we're one in purpose, they wouldn't have done that. He's saying we are one in nature, one in essence. But yet he has a role of submission. And I think that's important for us to see. As soon as we say, well, a wife is, a wives are to be subject to their husbands, some person who is biblically foolish thinks, oh, one is better than the other. It's not true. Completely, totally equal, unique roles. Number three on our list here. Submission does not mean inferiority. Submission doesn't mean inferiority, and we've already really covered that. And I would go to the same passage we just looked at. The Godhead. Are you going to say Jesus Christ is inferior to God the Father? No, you're not going to say that. No. So husbands, again, let me remind you, totally, completely equal. Wives, let me remind you, totally, completely, spiritually equal. We just have unique roles that we need to carry out if we're going to do God's will. Number four. 
We're looking at six, remember. Submission is not cultural. Submission is not cultural. You say, well, that's what I've heard. That's a popular statement. Well, that's just cultural because you see they weren't educated in those times like they are today or whatever the reason would be. You can go there, but when you go to the Scripture, you find it's not cultural. It's something that started way back when. Genesis, before sin ever happened, Eve is Adam's what? It's her helper. They're equal. They're both human beings, but she's the helper. She's to assist Adam as he's naming the, you know, he's going through all the different things and keeping, taking care of the garden. That's what she's supposed to help him do. We're also going to look at another passage that deals with that, but let me kind of use a little bit of, uh, I call it foolish logic or illogic. As soon as you want to go to Colossians 3 and say, that's just cultural and write it off. Are you willing to make the next verse cultural? Husbands, love your wives. (laughs) I mean, let's be consistent here. We're going to write one off and not the other. All of a sudden, husbands can say, I don't have to do that. That's just cultural. That's what you guys did. We don't want to do that, and that's just silly, and I know no one would do that, I hope. But let's go to one other passage that sees that this is not cultural. It's tied to creation itself before sin ever started, and that's 1 Timothy chapter 2. 1 Timothy. If you are in Colossians, you need to work your way to the right, First and Second Thessalonians, and then 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy. Now, let me make sure to remind you, this passage is not dealing with husbands and wives. It's dealing with church issues and who's to lead in the church. But nevertheless, the whole notion of submission and roles does come out in principle. 1 Timothy 2.12, notice what it says, But I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. And people want to write this off as cultural. I've read books that are dedicated to writing it off as cultural. I say, read the next verse, right? Read the verse. For it was Adam who was first created and then Eve. You see, it's anchored in the very created order of God. God says this is how it started from the very beginning, and that's what Paul's pointing out, and it doesn't change. Now, he goes on to emphasize the fall, and that just further proved that men should lead. Adam didn't, his fault, in verse 14. And it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. Before you guys get all puffed up and prideful and say, see, it was the woman, who did God hold responsible? Yeah, and we're going to get there next week. Adam is the one who led the human race into sin. He was responsible for that, but that's not our point for this morning. I just want you to see that as soon as you make this cultural, you could make anything cultural, unbiblically speaking. Well, let's go on to number five here, and I'm itching to get back to Colossians 3, so let's move things along here. Number five, submission is not a Pauline or Pauline aberration. It's not a Pauline or Pauline aberration, some strange false doctrine that he mustered up because he happened to not like women. And that's used a lot. I've read through entire books that are dedicated to that. Well, remember, we just saw that it's tied to Genesis because Eve is the helper. And then Paul himself ties it to Genesis in 1 Timothy. And then let me tell you about something that frightens me. Causes me fear. Causes me to not want to stand next to someone that has a problem with Paul's writings because I don't know what God's going to do to them. I know what he's going to do to them ultimately. And I don't know if you know, but the Bible deals with that. It addresses that. These people that want to attack the writings of Paul, and the Bible itself speaks to that. And it's not a pretty picture, because Paul's writings are Scripture, as we will see. And I want you to turn there and see it for yourself, because if you're like me, you run into this rather frequently. And that's Second Peter. Second Peter. And you go to the end of your Bible, Revelation, and back up one book, Jude, Third John, Second John, First John, and then Second Peter. 
This is sobering. I've, had to, I've said to people before, uh, I don't think you want to say what you've just said. That's not a good thing because let me tell you what the Bible says about you now that you just said it. Now remember, Peter and Paul, I take it they got along. But Peter, you know, didn't exactly have to go out of his way to try to say nice, nice things about Paul. Remember, Paul was the one in Galatians that had to confront Peter for his doctrinal error. And yet Peter here is willing to say good things about Paul's writings because he knows they're true. It's not like he's just trying to sugarcoat and defend Paul, I don't think. Second Peter chapter 3. Second Peter 3, we're in verse 15. And I know we're just jumping into the context here, <clears throat> but let's just start halfway through that verse. It says, Our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you. Notice what it goes on to say in verse 16. As also in all his letters, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand, you could even translate that, hard to accept, which the untaught, ooh, ouch, and unstable distort, as they do the rest of the scriptures, notice the end, it's grim, to their own destruction. The word destruction there is used in the New Testament for eternal destruction. They're not believers. Because they go after the writings of Paul, they show their true colors. Do notice also, since we're here, refers to the rest of the scriptures, the writings of Paul, the rest of the scriptures, puts his writings on par with the rest of the writings that are authoritative in the Bible. So be careful before you make accusations against Paul would be my warning to you. Number six, and finally regarding biblical submission, and we'll stop here. Submission, get this, is rejected because of sin. Did you catch that? Submission is rejected because of sin, specifically the fall. Why does this whole notion of submission and subjection cause the world, want to, cause the world to say, we hate that, we don't want anything to do with that? Why does it cause even those of us who are saved, we've been born again, but we still struggle with the effects of the fall, to say, I don't know about this. Why does it cause, it to rub, cause us to be rubbed the wrong way? Well, I think it's because of sin and it's because of the fall. Go back to Genesis one more time and then we'll make our way back to Colossians 3. Genesis, back in the fall, Genesis 3, I believe the reason we have a problem with submission is because of sin itself. I guess my sermon today proves that we're not part of the church growth movement. <laughs> you know what we're committed to here, folks? We're committed to saying, well, what does God say? We're going to study it. We're going to teach it. And what we're going to do is pray as hard as we can to let God have us live it out in our life because we think that's what God's plan would be. Numbers, oh, Galatians, or excuse me, Genesis chapter 3, verse 16. Here's part of the curse. It says, To the woman he said, God saying to her, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain you will bring forth children. And here's what I want to note to you. Your desire, yet your desire, will be for your husband and he will rule over you. Now, throughout church history, people have taken this desire, that's the word we're talking about, in different ways. Some have said, well, that's sexual desire. Wrong answer. The woman had sexual desire for her husband before the fall ever happened because they became one flesh and that was all positive. God said it is good for that to happen. So what is it talking about? I think the best way to understand the word there, based upon close context, we'll look at a passage in a second, desire, desire to overpower, desire to control, because notice even the end of the verse, and he will rule over you. You'll have this desire to rule, you'll have this desire, but it won't happen, he'll rule over you. 
And you say, how can you be so sure? I think the best argument for that interpretation is in chapter 4, if you'd turn over there with me. Chapter 4, verse 7, the same exact word is used in close context. And notice how it's used. I will not read that verse to you. But in chapter 4, verse 7, it's talking about sin having desire to control a person. Sin wants to overpower. Sin wants to control. That's the emphasis there. And so when we interpret Genesis 3.16, I think that's the best way to understand it. It's that desire to be in charge, even though that wasn't the God-given role. The God-given role is helper. Thus we have the beginning of the battle of the sexes, I would say. So, this helps me. You say, that's kind of a downer. I don't think it needs to be a downer. If this is the way it all happened and this is what God did, I'm not down about it because I'm a Christian and I have a Christian family and a Christian wife. Let's not be down about it. Let's say, this is good. At least we know what the problem is. We know where it stems from. And we know what God wants in this whole thing. He's not trying to make second-class Christians. No. Spiritual equals, but we have unique roles. And my wife can also know, and I can know, that when there is a struggle there, even as a saved person, you can pray about it, you've got the Holy Spirit in your life, and you don't have to be grounded to following the result of the fall. Well, I would consider this a biblical perspective on submission. Vogue or not. That's what the Bible would say about it. And you know, I want to know what it says. Because again, I want to have a godly family. Remember, Colossians 3, 1 to 4, what do we do? Seek the things above. We have a total different agenda now in life. I don't do things the way the world tells me to do it. I don't do things the way I used to do it. And wives aren't supposed to either. This is different. And I'm believing with all my heart that I'm not going to challenge God and say, well, I think I have a better way. I think there's a biblical way, and why not do the biblical thing which would be the right thing? That's the detour. I hope you didn't mind the detour. I hope that was helpful for a lot of you. Let's go back to the passage. Let's go back to Colossians 3.18, back to the command, and let's go ahead and apply it to wives. What does it say in Colossians 3.18? We read it twice already, but it says, Wives, be subject to your husbands. And let's not make this some kind of ancient text that doesn't apply to today. And historically speaking, etc., etc., etc. It's a command. Wives, let's make it personal. I'm going to make the command personal for us here today. Wives, if you are a wife, the Bible's saying, be subject to your husbands. Submit to your husbands. If we want to have a Christian family and a Christian home, that's what you've been called to do. Now let's study that word a little bit more. Be subject. I did say already it's a command. Another important thing is it is in the present tense. It doesn't say, be subject twice a month. Uh, be subject once a week. Be subject 50 days out of the year. I mean, be subject ongoingly, continually. That's what present tense means. It's a habit of your life. If someone were to observe you and say, what characterizes her life? Well, she's subject to her husband. She follows his leadership. She's supportive. She's a helper. And that's what God is calling you to do if you're a Christian wife. Also notice, it's not only a present imperative, a present command, it's a present middle imperative. And you say, wow, I didn't know I was going to learn so much Greek today. Why is it significant? I don't like to just give Greek words to make it look like I have some kind of education. But if it's important, let's talk about it. It's a present, so it's ongoing. Middle, it's something you do yourself. This is, therefore, voluntary. It's voluntary. It, it shouldn't be, do this because I say and I'm the husband. No, that's not what it's saying. And husbands, don't you forget that. This is addressed to wives, not you husbands. Wives, you yourselves voluntarily be subject. Now, it's not an option because God says it, but it's saying it's from God and saying you yourselves do it, so it is voluntary. 
It's not something a husband imposes. So what do you do? You say, I'm going to support my husband. I'm going to help my husband. I'm going to do all I can so I can be a helper to him. That's what the Bible's talking about. Notice something it doesn't say, though. It doesn't say what it says to children in Colossians 3. Wives, obey your husbands. It's not there. Different word. It's not saying that. Now, I do know that Sarah is said to have obeyed her husband in 1 Peter, but that's not the command here. It's submit. There's a difference between a husband and a wife's relationship and a husband and the children's relationship or the wife's and the children's relationship, right? It's different. You're a team. You, the wife is the helper. They were doing ministry together. They were doing God's will together. I take it there was consultation. I, was taking, I take it they would have worked together sorting things out, a plan for a living, a plan for taking care of the garden. It wasn't, Eve, I command you to do this. No, you can do that with your children, but you can't do that to your wife. It's not obey, it's submit, and it's supposed to be voluntary. And I think we need to make sure we know that. You are a team. Now, Ephesians 5 gives us some more light on this, and I do want to have you turn there. It's the parallel passage. We're in Colossians. Just go over there real quick, and it'll give us some extra light on this. Just back up a couple of books to Ephesians. It doesn't just say in Ephesians... Wives, submit to your husbands. It says something even more. We're in verse 22. In verse 22 it says, Wives, be subject to your own husbands. Let's remember that. Guys first, let me remind you of that. Men in general, every wife in the church is not supposed to submit to you. If you think that, you function that way, you're functioning unbiblically. Don't do that. Now, we all are supposed to submit to leaders and we need to keep all that in balance. But it doesn't say wives submit to men. It says wives submit to husbands. It does say your own husbands. Now let me apply it to the wives. You need to know that too. You don't have to go through life submitting to all these different men because you happen to be a Christian woman. No, you've been called to submit to your husband. Well, in our home, we even want to try to work hard and be careful that, that, my, that my wife is not in positions where she's always submitting to all these other men because it may end up being confusing because I'm the one that God has placed in her life. She's my helper. We're a team. She's supportive. I'm supposed to sacrificially love her. And so you need to take that into consideration. Wives, submit to your own husbands. Then notice what it says in verse 22. As to the Lord. I don't think I even need to comment on it. (laughs) It's strong. It really is. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. Then verse 24, But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. So it's just not in, well, spiritual matters. Oh, it's just in physical matters. It's just in financial matters. And it says in everything. So there's this constant relationship going on with husbands and wives. Now, verse 18 goes on to say, now let's go ahead and go back to Colossians if you're not there. That just gives us some extra light. Colossians 3.18 will end this verse and begin winding down. We're not quite there. Colossians 3.18 at the end says, As is fitting in the Lord. As is fitting in the Lord. And I think the best way to understand that is, well, now you're a Christian, now you're in Christ, now you're complete in Him. Be subject to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. In the Lord means you're saved, it means you're united with Him. Well, now that that's happened, this is fitting. This is fitting conduct for you. You say, I am a Christian. I believed in Christ and Christ alone is my Savior. I'm living a Christian life. Well, you know what's fitting for you then? In your role to your husband is to submit to him as is fitting in the Lord. It's totally inconsistent to say, I am a Christian woman, but I'm not going to submit to my husband because it's as is fitting in the Lord. 
It's the right thing to do if you're a Christian, in other words. Application-wise, you may have lived your life a different way. You may be living it up until this very point a different way. Well, that's okay. It's time to start. Now that you're a Christian, it's time to do it differently. Especially if you've become a Christian, certainly it's going to be a marked difference. Now, there's an objection. <laughs> a objection, an objection. There are probably many, right? But one big objection is, that's too restrictive. I mean, what about my freedom? I mean, I, that's, not very, that's not freeing at all. That's so restrictive. Why is the Bible putting these limitations on me? And I would say, yes, in one sense it is restrictive. But please stop and be rational and biblical and not just emotional and realize that sometimes Bible, the Bible and God places quote-unquote constraints on us. Why? To harm us? No, because that's what He designed from the very beginning and it's not truly free to be outside of those boundaries. Listen to a great illustration. It's in a book called Recovering Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. Listen carefully. I thought this was helpful. Two women may jump from an airplane and experience the thrilling freedom of free-falling. But there is a difference. One is encumbered by a parachute on her back and the other is free from this burden. Which person is the most free? The one without the parachute feels free, even freer since she does not feel the constraints of the parachute straps. But she is not truly free. She is in bondage to the force of gravity and to the deception, get this, to the deception that all is well because she feels unencumbered. This false sense of freedom is in fact bondage to calamity which is sure to happen after a fleeting moment of pleasure, end of quote. That's good thinking. God puts restrictions in my life as a Christian man, but I don't see that as keeping me away from true freedom. I want to be free where God wants me to be free and live a truly fulfilled life as He would want me to. So let me be very pointed in application once again. Wives. The Bible is clear as clear can be. And you've got to do business with God if this isn't happening in your life and say, I'm ready. I want to do the right thing. I want to be a helper to my husband. We have different roles. We have unique roles. Presently, ongoingly, voluntarily, you're called to submit to your husband. Let me give a couple of passages to you who do not have Christian husbands. We're not going to cover that today, but that's a serious issue. And I know there's some of you who happen to be married to unbelievers, and the Bible speaks to that. And let me just give you some passages you can look at on your own that are very helpful. Because Colossians is dealing with Christian families, I believe. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, if you're married to an unbelieving spouse. 1 Corinthians 7. Also, 1 Peter chapter 3. It'll be a great study for you to work through and what God would expect you to do in relation to your Christian husband. One final question, and we're going to end on this. This is as clear as clear it can be in the Bible. I think it's as clear as John 3.16. Maybe clearer because it's talked about more. This is really the role of the wife. And again, husbands, you come next time, you're going to get yours, and it's going to be a lot harder. But, if it's so clear in the Bible, my one question is, are there ever exceptions? Are there ever exceptions for you wives where you're going to say, I not only will not submit, I cannot submit? And the answer to that question is, yes, there are exceptions, and I do want to talk about that. It's important that we talk about that or we wouldn't be biblically balanced. But let me warn you before we go there, it's not your, it's not your easy fix. 
never designed by God to say, uh, as some kind of easy fix where you can say, well, I don't want to submit to my husband, so I have a way out. It's for the clear-cut case where there's something wrong and you're being required to do something sinful clearly that you say, no, I can't do that. I call it the, princip- the higher law principle. You can write that down if you'd like. It's not a biblical statement, but the Bible teaches it. I've just titled it. The higher law principle is what you would need to find. Let me read what I wrote as far as the definition. What that means, the higher law principle, is that when submission to one person or institution requires you to disobey another, the higher law takes priority. If your husband commands you to do something that is sinful or wrong and it's going to cause you to sin against God, you take the higher ground and you follow the higher law principle and you say, I will not obey you, I cannot, I can't submit to you because I would be sinning against God. And that's true in other areas too. And the classic example of this is the Apostle Peter. He's not talking about marriage, he's talking about something else, but it still applies. Peter in 1 Peter chapter 2 is so dogmatic and so clear. He's challenging those new believers, even believers who are persecuted, challenging them to submit to who? The government. You Christian believers, you submit to the government. God has ordained the government. Romans 13 talks about it too. You submit to the government. And you know what the Apostle Peter does? In Acts chapter 4 and Acts chapter 5, he blatantly disobeys the government. Why? He followed the higher law principle. The government was telling him to stop doing biblical things. And so I do want you to see that in Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4, last passage we'll look at, Acts 4 and 5. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Acts 4. There may come a time, you hope there's not a time, and please make sure it's clearly uh, this black and white. It's not some kind of excuse to not submit to your husband. But there are times when we take the higher ground, and here's an example of one. Notice Acts chapter 4, verse 18, it's talking about the governing authorities, and it says, And when they had summoned them, they commanded them not to speak or teach at all, at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said to them, notice here, Whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than God, you be the judge. For we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. Now, Peter was willing to take the consequences but he refused to obey the government, even though he said you should obey the government. Why? Because they were telling them to stop doing something that God commanded Peter to do. The clearer of of these two passages is Acts 5. Go ahead and go to Acts 5, verse 27. Acts 5, 27. Similar situation. It says in verse 27, when they had brought them, they stood them before the council. The high priest questioned them saying, we gave you strict orders not to continue teaching in this name. And yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching. So they didn't just disobey a little, they disobeyed a lot. And intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Verse 29, But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. Pretty clear. You know another good example? Daniel. Daniel chapter 6. He knew it was against the law to pray to God and he did it anyway. Now, that's what he had always done. He didn't do it just for a show. But there was a time when he followed. He didn't call it the higher law principle, but he did it. How does this apply to Christian wives? I think it does apply to Christian wives. If your husband is calling you to do something that is sin against God, you don't do it. You don't, take part, you don't partake in it. Now, I realize some people want to use a different rationale and say, well, wives, God won't hold you accountable. You submit to your husband, even if he's commanding you to sin, and God won't hold you accountable. 
Uh, I don't accept that rationale. Uh, you take it to an ex- ex- its extreme and it's illogical. Uh, if I were to, as an unbeliever, tell my wife she couldn't believe in Christ and get saved, think she would go to heaven? Everything in the New Testament would lead to the conclusion that she wouldn't go to heaven. Amen. She has to obey the Lord. It's the higher command. There's no other way to be saved. Uh, so I think we don't want to be ridiculous. I would say if, if I told my wife she couldn't be baptized. You're a Christian? No. I would want her to come to me and say, I have to obey God because that's what I've been called to do. These hard sayings of Jesus we see, when he calls people to leave the very closest relationships to them, count the cost, there's a place for that. The other passage, in case you're interested in that whole debate, some of you are not, would be 1 Corinthians 7. We're not going to turn there. But 1 Corinthians 7, we have believers and unbelievers. We have couples being married and one gets saved. And you know what happens? Oftentimes, the husband would leave the wife. Well, why would, she, why would he leave? Because the wife is now a Christian and now she's doing Christian things. She wasn't saying, well, no, I have to submit to my husband. I won't believe. And I won't do any Christian activities. Well, then why would he have left? He wouldn't have left because there would have been no change. And that's for free for those of you who are not interested in the whole debate. But I think clearly there comes a time when you have to draw the line and be like Peter and say, I must obey God rather than man. I have to do the right thing. Well, wives... <laughs> I don't think this is very easy, is it, to follow the command of Colossians 3? It's not very easy at all. I can only imagine. Wives, be subject to your husbands. Ephesians tells us in everything. It's not very easy. I know it's not very easy because of the effects of the fall. And I also know it's not very easy because if you're married to a Christian or a non-Christian, you're married to a sinner like me. Right? Two sinners living together happily ever after. It's not easy. It's hard. The good news is, by the grace of God, I can fulfill my God-given role and sacrifice for my wife and love her. Hard to do because we love ourselves. But the good news is I can actually do that with the help of the Spirit of God. The good news is for wives, they can actually, you can actually do this with the help of the Spirit of God. Hard? Absolutely. Possible? Absolutely. And talk about freeing true freedom. I want to do what God says. I'll never find more freedom than by doing that. I'm scared to say amen. <laughs> Actually, someone said after first service, uh, a wife said to me, I really appreciate that. She said I, there was encouragement there. I, I think with God's help I can do that. And any time I've ever heard this before, I felt so beat up I thought I could never even do it. And I said, well, I may want you as a witness because someone else may come to me and not feel that way and I'll want you to go talk to them. So uh, I've got someone for you to talk to if you uh, are concerned. <laughs> let's pray and let's ask God to help us sincerely. God, we come before you right now and we don't come before you flippantly or lightly. We've just opened your eternal word that speaks truth to every age. It's always been true and it always will be true. And Lord, it's humbling to see what you require of us. It's good to see, though, that you've never changed the requirement. It's always been the same and you always expect the same thing from us, Lord. I just pray that you would have an impact on the Christian families that are part of this local church, that we would see many godly women And as we'll see next week, I pray that we would have many godly men, not selfish men, but godly men who love their wives sacrificially. And Lord, I pray that we would make a difference even as a result of these studies, that these would be key for us, that the world would see a difference and men and women would watch and they would see what Christ can do in a family. Lord, I pray that you would give us tremendous victory in these areas. Thank you so much that you have chosen to save us, 
to give us instructions and then to find personal glory in changing our lives. In Jesus' name we all pray. Amen.